0: Hello, I'm Paul Scott, and today I'm talking to Jay Wright, the CEO of Virgin Wines, ticker V-I-N-O. Thanks for joining me today, Jay.
1: Pleasure, Paul. Thanks very much for having me on.
0: And quick disclaimers, as always, I'm not charging a fee or being given free wine, as somebody on Twitter suggested. Um, This is not uh, advice or a recommendation, and I do not currently hold shares personally and please always do your own research. Uh, as usual, could we start by asking you to give an overview of Virgin Wines, please?
1: Yeah, of course. Um, Virgin Wines is one of the UK's largest out-to-consumer wine retailers and uh, we focus on a number of really key business pillars. Um, first of all, customer acquisition and bringing in um, large numbers of new customers um, at low cost, which are high quality that deliver high levels of payback. Um, those customers then join a number of different consumer propositions which we have, which I'm sure we'll, um, we'll talk about later, Paul, but we have um, a number of different subscription schemes as well as a, a wine advisor service and also a just a pay-as-you-go service which um, allows customers really to choose the right sort of membership for themselves. Um, that in turn then delivers high customer retention rates and high sales retention rates. Um, and then we have a unique sourcing model as well, which helps us to um, maximize our margins. So the way we buy wine is really fundamental to the whole, um, the whole business model. On top of that, we have a growing B2B commercial arm of the business, which is performing extremely well. Um, and all of that ensures that we can deliver industry-leading EBITDA margins um, and maintain a really strong balance sheet.
0: Great. Um, I saw your recent webinar for uh, year end June twenty twenty two results, um, which was really good. So thank you for doing that. That's on investor meet company. So I'll try not yeah. to du- duplicate what what was said on that in this interview. Um, but let's talk about the sector first of all, because you've got a number of uh, competitors which you mentioned in your aim admission document, like Naked Wines, La- uh, is it Leithwaites? Yeah, um, Leithwaites. Yeah, and the Wine Society. So. So that does make the, the gross margins quite tight. So, so you might have you you've sort of half covered this already, really. But where, where do you see your competitive advantages in particular?
1: Yeah, well, I think I think the business, I think the fact that we deliver the kind of EBITDA margins that we do. Um, which are you know so so much further ahead of our competitors um probably shows that there is a competitive advantage within the actual business model and it is an and and it is around bringing in bringing in customers at the cost that we bring them in because obviously the higher that costs you then um then the more difficult it is to get return on investment and 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 the relevant lifetime value out of those customers so low acquisition costs are um, are essential um, and then obviously retaining customers and keeping them loyal for many years to come rather you know we've always wanted a business that's a that's a bucket rather than a colander. and um and when you put lots of customers into into business you want to stay for, for many years to come and really love the service and the wines and the quality that we that we offer and that, i think you know that's what we work really hard at and that's what we've done for um the last 20 22 years that have been involved in this and and hopefully um you know along the way we've we've learned how to do that really well which is why it pays dividends now
0: yeah, interesting. And following on from that, um, I think you've covered this in the past, but I can't remember what it was. But using of the uh, Virgin brand name, what are the costs and the benefits of that?
1: Um well in terms of in terms of the cost we pay uh, I mean we have the we have the brands under license um from from Virgin Group, which um which which happened back in two thousand and five. Um and we um we pay um a percentage of revenue to the virgin group for the use of the uh, for the use of the brand um obviously the benefits are i think you've you've got a you've got a global iconic brand that's i think is is highly trusted um and obviously there's lots of uh, partnerships with other parts of the virgin business you know, other parts of the overall virgin business which we find extremely useful. So I think there's lots of benefits and I feel that obviously well, brand is going to have its detractors um as well as its advocates. But um I'm still a firm believer that the Virgin brand is a is a is is a net positive um rather than anything else and um you you know we're we're certainly extremely proud um, to be part of the Virgin Virgin Group overall, and um, we think we get all the benefits from having the brand name.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, certainly I perceive it as a you know a, a good like you say a, good, a quality brand. Um, I mean, a couple of people have mentioned to me though recently. That the the advertising for the airline Virgin Airlines seems to have gone sort of ultra woke, um, and I'm just which some people like, some people don't. So I'm just wondering, how does that fit with your demographic, which I assume is probably middle aged to older people? Yeah, well,
1: it's, it's wide We've got a really wide ranging demographic and in fact in fact um about 15% of our of our customer base is under 30 so actually you know we've got a really wide range of of, of customers and i'm sure we've got a very wide range of customer views as any large Business, um, you know, with a large customer base will have, uh, to be honest with you, I actually haven't seen, um, the latest version of Atlantic ad- adverts, so I can't really comment upon that. Um, and obviously it's completely up to the individual businesses, um, how they want to market and how they want to advertise. Um, all i say is o- overall, I think that all the things that Virgin are doing, um, I mean, I, I, I've, I've always loved the disruptive element of, um, a virgin as a as a brand and the the ethos of of, um, of, of, of doing business the right way um, and of and of trying to you know change change how you do things for the better all the time and and, and I think that things I, I I think that we've tried to keep that that ethos of working out. What are all the frustration points that there can be within the customer journey that someone might have with us? And how do we eliminate all of those every single step of the way so that the customer gets the very best experience? And putting that consumer at the heart of all your decision-making processes, um, I think, is kind of at the heart of what the Virgin brand stands for. And it's very much what we try to implement on a day-to-day basis.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I do think of, you know, they they shake things up, don't they, when you think yeah. of Virgin and the, yeah, in sort of sleepy sectors Yeah. So now the obvious question that everyone's asking you at the moment is that with the macroeconomic picture uh, being the way it is and the consumer downturn and retrenching, isn't a wine subscription one of the obvious first things that people would cancel? Fun
1: funnily enough, I think probably alcohol is one of the last things that people sort of <laughs> want to stop going without, um, yeah. fortunately. I mean Unfortunately, Paul, I'm, I'm old enough to have been doing this when we went through the, uh, the 2008 financial crisis. And, and I think look, there's, there's obviously different dynamics at play. And I would say that our wine bank scheme is a, is a very, very useful tool for people to be able to budget for their for their um, for their wine spend, so the whole point of wine bank is that you can spread the cost of buying wine by saving an amount each month in your wine bank account. So you know you can put anything from fifteen pounds a month in, um, up to a hundred pounds, and for every five pounds you save, you get a pound from Virgin Wine, so a twenty percent interest rate on your money that you can then go and spend on on wine. So being able to to save little and often to be able to build up the amount that you want to buy for wine as and when you get round to obviously wanting to buy a case, I think is a really good way for people to also budget, particularly in these times um, when you know probably paying £100 straight off for a full case of wine might feel like quite a big ticket item in one go. And the fact that people get that 20% interest as well, I think, represents great value, um, you know, and free delivery as well on Wine Bank, which I think is why that that 130000 Customer base that we've currently got on wine bank has remained so loyal. So I think I think that, that you know, we're, we've got a great scheme to be able to um, counter some of the issues that um, the, the consumer discretionary elements you've talked about sort of places pressure on us. Um, I'm, I, I wouldn't suggest for a second that we're immune to what happens within the macro environment because obviously that's not the case. But um, but you know for, for all the people who decide that maybe they're going to or a little bit less frequency. Um, frequently, I think there's also people who decide that maybe it's quite expensive going out, maybe they'll stay in instead, and you know, we, can, we can benefit from that as well. So I think there's opportunities as well as areas of challenge in terms of the current climate.
0: Yeah, that's interesting because I mean, I'm, I must admit, I'm finding going to the pub, you know, and paying five pound plus for every for every drink and and eating out is very expensive now, isn't it? So yeah, yeah, you can see that people uh, might stay at home instead or preload with some Virgin Wine before they go out to a restaurant.
1: Indeed. So,
0: yeah, I mean, is that
1: is that what you experienced
0: in 2008 then?
1: Yeah, I mean we, we actually did quite well over the two thousand and eight period. So we were we, we, we were pleased with the growth that we saw over that over that period and I do think say, that that sort of dynamic of people deciding to um to stay in um and socialise with friends at home rather than all going out to eat and drink. Mm. I'm sure people are gonna to want to go out and eat and drink, still of course we all do, mm. but um but but but, but, but you yeah, know there's a there's there's sometimes just that extra option of staying in instead and um I'm sure people will take that up and especially with all the Christmas festivities coming up at the moment. Um, maybe people just decide to do a little bit more socializing in the home environment, and that maybe bodes well for, um, for us over the next couple of months.
0: Yeah, well, that's interesting that you can demonstrate that you did, did okay in 2008, isn't it? But that's fact and not, not sort of aspiration. So, yeah, that's, that's encouraging. So, now, looking next at customer lifetime value, and I know you've said what your acquisition cost is. It's £13.22, which seems yeah. seems quite low. So how does that cost of acquisition compare with the lifetime value then of the customer?
1: Well I say we get so our payback rates are um on average five times over five years. So in effect we're getting you know five times the cost of um of acquiring a customer um back in terms of margin over a five year period, which is which you know we think is is extremely um is, is extremely positive. Um so yeah, I mean, look, I think I one of the biggest challenges we get, Paul, is is, is would you not reduce your payback and pay and pay more for customers um, to drive more customer acquisition? And I think that the the very disciplined way that we go about acquiring customers and the different um, and, and the different mechanics that we use to do that ensures that we're able to keep that cost per acquisition low, keep the quality of customer coming in high, which ensures that the conversion rates retain high um, and. That's actually what drives the profitability of the business. So it's actually essential that we maintain that if we're going to carry on delivering the kind of margins that we're um, that we're wanting to do over the course of the coming years.
0: Yeah, I mean the average customer though, because there must be quite a few who cancel in the first year or, or two. So I mean, what's the average lifetime value? Well, that, that that's it. Uh, sorry. The the, it, the, the, time. The, the actual time. Sorry, I meant not the value. Because, I mean, it wouldn't be five years, would it? for well, no,
1: well, no. Well, we don't. We don't really measure time because there's such a variation. I mean, we've got. We've got. Um, in fact, it's quite interesting. We do a lot of cohort analysis um, mm. for looking at looking at customers who've been with us for many years, and and we still got. You know, Many, many thousands of customers who are in our pre-FY15 cohorts. And just to, just to put some numbers on that, in, in, in FY19, that pre-FY15 cohort, that's all those customers who were, who were active with us, um, who we'd recruited up to FY15, delivered £20.9 million pounds of revenue in FY19. In FY22, that same cohort delivered £20.4 million. Of revenue, okay. so you know, ninety-five percent customer retention rate. Um, mm. So sorry, sales retention rate over that period. So I think, I think, you know, that proves how, how how loyal the customer base is and how people stay with us for many years. Of course, there are customers who who drop off straight away. Then look, you know, our conversion rate is fifty-three percent. So nearly half the customers who take an initial case don't then go on and buy another case we know that there's lots and lots of, of, of people who who obviously take advantage of a of a of a well-priced um initial offer and then decide you have know, to go and find another well-priced initial offer from somewhere else and that's you know that's obviously just one of the one of the consumer dynamics that we have but the fact that you know the 53 percent of customers who convert then largely go on and become um you know a Longstanding customer of Virgin Wines is what helps to deliver those kind of pay payback levels I'm talking about. So, um, so yeah, because, I mean, the co—I mean the the cohorts perform perform extremely well, and even that COVID cohort, which um, which they're so lovingly called the customers that we are uh, that we brought in over that period, and which again we got an awful lot of challenge about um, when we went through the IPO. There was a lot of a lot of people questioning whether we'd end up with. Um, an awful lot of attrition off those customers who came in over that period. Who, when things opened up, would go back and do what they were doing before. And you know, in FY21, those customers um, that came on board in who, who were FY20, FY21 recruited customers delivered 21 million of revenue, and in FY22 they delivered 20 million of revenue. So again, you know, very very strong customer and sales retention rates out of those cohorts.
0: Yeah, interesting. And, and the results for June 2022 did impress me. And that's why I, I asked to speak to you, actually, because it looked a lot more resilient than I was expecting. Because a lot of e-commerce businesses, you know, saw that huge surge from, from the pandemic and then they're going backwards. Um, but you held your profit before tax steady at 5.1 million on 69 million revenues. It was only down 6% the revenues. Yeah. Um, so, so how have you managed to hold on to those? largely to those pandemic gains, when others, um, in particular Naked Wines, for example, have have been struggling?
1: I think probably to go back to exactly what I've just been talking about, which is that loyalty of of the customer base. And you could see, again, from those numbers I mentioned about the cohorts that were, you know, delivering large amounts of sales four years ago are delivering the same amount of sales now. So, yeah, we haven't got that attrition rate and customers, you know, retain, you know, Remain loyal; they carry on buying. I think the one thing that we've certainly seen over the course of the last um, the last 12 months is all the frequency tends to go down a little bit. Obviously, when consumer um, you know, when when there's pressure on consumer um, discretionary spend, and I think that that's that's to be expected. Um, but but in terms of where we lost that revenue as well, it's quite interesting because our core business. Um, didn't actually really reduce in revenue at all year on year we maintained all of that um existing customer revenue where we lost a little bit was on customer acquisition because it did scale back um the amount we were doing on that just because as again as the as the trading environment changes, so our decision making in terms of marketing investment changes a little bit um, but so 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 our customer acquisition revenue went down a bit, and our gifting side of the business which was by far the the single biggest beneficiary of the covid lockdowns and you can imagine when all the when all the shops are shut and people can't visit each other online gifting becomes extremely um extremely popular um and Once everything opens up again, then obviously by the very nature of that then that tends to get a bit of a downturn so that lost revenue was really exclusively from um from the customer acquisition side of things and the um and the gifting part of the business. The actual core proposition um stayed the same year on year.
0: Oh, that's encouraging, isn't it? Yeah. Let's um, talk a little bit more about online marketing then because I know – during the pandemic, the uh, online marketing generally went through the roof in, in 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 costs where basically Google and Facebook decided to grab everyone else's profits of themselves. Um, <laughs> so, but I've heard more recently that online marketing costs are going down. Somebody told me that I think Google has said their revenues were dropping 18, but the cost of ads were dropping 18% or something. So what, do, what are you seeing in terms of online marketing costs?
1: Yeah, I mean, we... I, I think again this is this is another area which is is why the business is as profitable as it is is because we don 't um, major on digital advertising and digital marketing as being our main source of of customer acquisition um, and we use a partnership model where we team up with um, hundreds of other businesses who've got a customer base um and demographic profile of customer base that we think is quite similar to ourselves and we partner with those um with those businesses to advertise ourselves to those um to those customers and bring customers in that way on a on a fixed cost for acquisition basis, which is what keeps that So low in terms of online digital marketing, it can just fluctuate so, so much the cost and you're right. They obviously escalated significantly during the pandemic, which is why we scaled right back from that form of advertising at that point. We have allowables that we're willing to pay in terms of um, a cost per acquisition through our digital channels and we just manage that on a day-to-day basis and we never go above that allowable. So, so, so it doesn't, it doesn't overly affect us how the costs um, change. Because we're never going to go over a level that we're happy to spend on each um on on each customer required through um through digital channels, and whether that be paid search shopping, native advertising programmatic social all those different forms of bringing customers in through the through 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 different digital channels um we're going to be, again be incredibly disciplined about um what we're willing to spend and what we're going to invest in those particular um channels and opportunities.
0: Yeah, that sounds good. That brings us on nicely to the business uh, B2B partnerships that you do. I saw, um, doing my research, I saw that you're on Moonpig, and I've sent some wines myself through Moonpig of yours. And, <laughs> Great, um, thank you. And my family like them. They're, all, they're lovely. And you're Great. doing rail, rail companies, and I've just got a, a leaflet, a uh, letter through from the Conservative Party who are also doing Virgin live. I think, you know, probably uh, Conservatives need to drown their sorrows right now. So that looks <laughs> timely.
1: Um, we're hoping, we're so- hoping Boris is going to have a big party, basically, <laughs> by lots of yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. So talk, talk us through these partnerships. Are they worthwhile financially? Are you looking to make margin on those sales? Or are they more a way of attracting new customers?
1: So, 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 so both of those things. So the Conservative Party... Um, uh, offer that you've talked about, um, is, is an offer that's going out to that, um, to, to the Conservative Party, um, sort of membership base and affiliate base, and, and that's, um, and that's an offer for, for, for those members to hopefully get a great, um, you know, a great deal on a, on a case of wine, and that brings them into our sort of direct to consumer world and into either our, our wine bank scheme or one of our other subscription. Schemes, or let's say the Pay As You Go service. So, so, so that's how those sort of partnerships work. The other ones you've mentioned, which is the Moonpig and the um and the and the train companies and things, that that they are um they're they're part of the commercial business, which I think I should mention at the very start, which is a blooming and blossoming part of our of our business. And that's just around sort of tying up with businesses who are obviously wanting to wanting to a either. Um, use our use our products um, for their own for their own customers. So Moonpig is a great example of that, where we started off. I think it was last last October, where we just sort of supplied a handful um, of different of different wines to Moonpig, which their customers could then attach to a card and send out as a as a gift as well. That relationship has blossomed um, extremely positively over the course of the last twelve months. We um, I think there's two businesses there that are really well aligned, um, both in terms of um, a as, as sort of non uh, you know in a non-competitive basis but also who 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 who, who can work and, and supplement each other's business strategies extremely well and that's an interesting situation where now we almost have a store in store concept within Moonpig, pig where, where you've got virgin wines at Moonpig within their website there's over 70 different wines and um sort of champagnes mm-hmm. and the like that people can can choose to attach to one of their cards um and it's been a brilliant concept. It's been really successful for both parties and, uh, and, you know, we're really excited about, um, how we can continue to, um, to scale that relationship with Moonpig over the, over the coming months. Um, the train companies are a little bit different with LNER, um, Avanti West Coast and with Great Western Railway. Again, we're supplying, um, the wines for the trains so that their customers can hopefully, um, you know, enjoy yeah, a lovely bottle of wine or glass of wine when they're on their on their travels, and and that's how that works. So yeah, we see a lot of opportunity to scale what we do within the commercial part of the business. Um, but similarly lots of scale in terms of um, partnerships that we're doing from a, a direct-to-consumer basis and I sh- it would be a miss of me to not mention that we've just um we've just agreed a, a really exciting new partnership with saga um where oh, we're yes. where, yes, where we're op- yeah so we're operating um um so so it's going to be a um vintage by saga is the name which very cleverly which we come up with um mm-hmm. which is uh, which is going to be the um, the name of the of the wine proposition for for Saga members, and um, yeah, we're hoping that we can deliver a you know, a brilliant wine service for um, for everyone involved in Saga.
0: Yeah, because they've got a huge customer database, haven't they? So, um, I mean, presumably with these partnerships, without giving a, giving away anything commercial, I mean, presumably you're you're paying the brand a commission per sale, are you? Is that how it would work?
1: Yeah, on the customer acquisition side of things, so on those partnerships, then we tend to we tend to pay um, a, a sort of a bounty, in effect, of you know an amount of money for each customer that we acquire through um, the activity that we do with that particular partner's customer base. Um, and therefore, you know, if, if it works really well and everyone does really well, but if it doesn't work as well, then obviously we don't we don't we don't pay for those customers. So um, so that's the way that it works. But um, but generally, those partnerships work extremely well. We think it adds a lot of value. To the actual um to the brand that we're working with as well, and I think that most brands we work with feel the same way um and that's why you know they'd be tend to we tend to be able to work with you know the same sort of people year after year as well.
0: Yeah, good stuff. And then, obviously, another obvious topical question, inflation. Um, I saw that you said you're guided, guiding revenues to be flat for the current year, June 23, but the EBITDA margins squeezed a little bit from 9%. You're guiding now to 8%. So yeah. um, so you, you, I think you said that you're not able to fully pass on all of your cost increases. So why
1: is that? Mainly because they're so they're so many, um, so there is there is uh, the the cost of glass has gone up um, substantially. The, um, the cost of shipping has gone up substantially. Um, obviously courier costs go up, packaging costs have gone up. There's, there's a lot of things to do with the actual, with the actual cost of, you know, so, so the actual cost of product that goes up. And we do manage to mitigate the vast majority of that through the different sort of levers that we can pull. Um, but there are things sort of below that gross profit line which are more difficult to, um, to mitigate. And just to give an example of one, there is something called um the waste levy that you may or may not be aware of and that's a that's a government tax. And we um and that's in effect a tax that's that 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 we pay um to go towards recycling of goods that we bring into the UK, so um so glass, packaging, anything metals like the capsules, etc. Um we have to buy something called PRNs, which basically sort of offset vouchers um for for everything that we bring into the UK. Uh, on glass, um, that was 25 pounds a ton. If I go back about 18 months, it's now 250 pounds a ton. Um, mm-hmm. So you know our waste levy charge for this year will have gone up by roughly 300,000 pounds. And there's just yeah, it's just a tax you can't do anything about. So there are you know there are costs that are just very difficult to mitigate in normal day-to-day trading. So you know we're we're still very pleased that we're able to deliver or you know aiming to deliver at eight percent. Even um, the margin, we think, um, you know, we think that's still uh, industry leading by some way.
0: Mm, yeah, and most of that translates straight through into profit as well, doesn't it? Because you're quite um, quite ca- uh, capital light, effectively, so not much yeah. fixed assets and so on. Yeah, and no no interest as your net cash position. So yeah, okay. I mean, I think generally, I can't speak for everyone, but I think most private investors seem to, I certainly do, prefer companies to, quote, adjusted profit before, before tax rather than EBITDA. We're generally suspicious as a group of <laughs> EBITDA, but in <laughs> your case, there's no, no need to be because it might nearly all translates through to profit. So that's just a bit of feedback there more than, more than a question. Um, uh, now, your balance sheet, that uh, passes my, my strict testing. It looks really healthy, and you've got plenty of cash. Um, and you benefit from the customers uh, paying up front, saving up money in the wine um, um, subscription scheme. Um, now you ring fence that cash as well, don't you? Which I think is very ethical
1: yeah I mean, as far as our, as far as we're concerned the um the money that customers save with us for their future purchases is their money it's not ours it's not ours until they spend it on wine and as such that's that's in a separate ring fenced account it's um it's completely safe um if customers ever want that money back, they only have to phone up and they can have their 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 money back and um you know it's not it's not something that our competitors do. Um, but we do um, separate that money out and we don't use it towards our working capital to run our business. You know, I say, it's not our money, it's our customer's money. And as such, we believe it should be ring-fenced and kept separate.
0: Yeah, good for you. That's refreshingly uh, transparent and ethical, I think. So going forward then, in terms of strategy, what's, what's your priority going forward? Is it driving profits or driving growth, paying dividends, acquisitions?
1: Obviously open to all sorts. I mean growth and profit should you know are always going to be aspirations um, for the business we all I mean we are we are profit focused we've always been we've never wanted to grow at the expense of profit we're probably a bit old fashioned like that we think that you know good businesses deliver profit generate cash and have a really healthy balance sheet and we think that having that allows us to do things with that cash moving forward that then allows us to grow further so you know, we tend to think of it in that cycle generate profit generate cash grow on the back of that rather than um the other way around and i think what that does is give us options um so right right um, yeah right now we get um we get a lot of opportunities to see ims from different businesses i think there's a there's a there's a there's a lot floating around um there aren't a lot of the sort of quality which would Um, make a sort of jump at an opportunity right now. I think, you know, it'd have to be the right opportunity, but we've always got our eyes open. And if we felt that we could find um, acquisitions, which would um, be profit enhancing, um, add real value to the overall Virgin Wines business um, and make strategic sense, and obviously we'd we'd be keen to look at that. Um, we're yeah. we're keeping our options open and you know we have current board topics actually around things like dividends and share buybacks and stuff like that because we obviously have got we have got cash um, so those are those are ongoing conversations which we which we have um, but I think the nicest thing Paul is just that having I mean I think solidity of business is so important in, in the current climate um, and being debt free and having a you know. A a good level of cash on the balance sheet just gives us options to be able to take advantage of opportunities when they crop up, whatever they should be, whether that be investing in the core, M&A, dividends, buybacks, whatever that might end up being strategically the right thing to be.
0: Yeah, so everything's on the table then effectively. Um, So now thinking about the IPO, I mean… I think, obviously, the, with hindsight, the IPO price, I think, was, was much too high. Um, and I think it was a private equity exit as well, isn't it, which often seemed to go wrong. Um, but um, now the, the share price is telling us – it's gone from one extreme to the other, I would say. You know, now it's a value share, which the market's got sort to of- – effectively saying it doesn't see um much if any growth going forward so i mean how do you feel about that how much bigger can the business get or is it is it reaching maturity market saturation
1: yeah i mean it's nowhere it's nowhere near that i mean the, we, we we increased our market share from just you know from 6.1 percent to 8.4 percent in the last 12 months um that's still a small amount of the market overall when you think of the, of the headroom that we have to grow um there is a there, there is a massive amount of room for us to grow within the um within the u k at the moment um and you know massive opportunities for us to um you know for us to continue to you know to get, continue to do that we think that the that the business right now is is probably substantially un, undervalued um Obviously, over time, the market will decide if that's the case or not. But the one thing the one thing we can't influence, Paul, is the is the share price. All we can influence is how well the business performs. And I think if we continue to focus on all of our long term strategic um, uh, sort of pillars that we continue to that we continue to drive, um, and we continue to grow the business, continue to grow our profits, and, and show what a resilient, robust business it is um, that can perform well. Um, as I say, and be resilient when times are quite hard, but also grow and really thrive in times when the are a little bit more positive, then over time, I'm pretty sure the share price will look after itself.
0: Yeah. And but one of the other problems with IPOs I've found is that the brokers tend to be a bit lazy and they just place large lumps of stock with institutions. And then there's then Often inadequate um, market liquidity in the aftermarket. Um, you know, it takes time for some of those holdings to break down into smaller parcels and private investors to, to find the company. Um, yeah. Uh, also, just again, a positive thing is that uh, Libram, who I think are an excellent broker, and they put out really good research and they share it with us on Research Tree. So that's another positive thing. So listeners can look up the um, broker notes there. Okay, I think we've pretty much, I think we've covered all the main topics. So, is there anything, any sort of closing remarks that you'd like to to cover, Jay?
1: Um, probably only that I, I, yeah, I think we've got an incredibly strong business. I, you know, we've been we've been profitable every single year for over a decade. Um, we continue to lead the way in our sector um, for profitability. Um I say I think I think we've uh, you know, the, the the business model has proven to be extremely resilient and um at the moment I would say that the the shares are exceptionally good value. So I think we've got a great business. If other people think so too then um, then that's fantastic and I hope that over time we can continue to grow um both in terms of revenue and profit and yeah you know, we've got a you know, i Paul, I love what I do, Paul. I'm incredibly lucky to do something that I love getting up every day and being involved with, and I hope I can continue to do this for a number of years to come.
0: Brilliant. Well, that sounds uh, really positive to me. So thanks very much for your time uh, today, Jay. I really appreciate it, and hope to speak to you uh, sometime in 2023 again.
1: That's great. Really appreciate your time today, Paul. Thanks very much. Thanks, Jay. Bye for now. Cheers now. Bye-bye.